Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise be to God. It's a beautiful day in February here in Texas. No snow and had a beautiful weekend. I'm very thankful to the Lord for all the many blessings that He gives us in our everyday life. I'm thankful that I get another chance, another week to stand up here and talk to you guys and basically teach you the Bible. If you already know what I'm going to talk about, that's great. And maybe you don't know some of the things I'm going to talk about, but it's a privilege and an honor for me to stand up here and be able to tell you guys all about God and the things of God and the things of His Word. So I'm very privileged. I feel very privileged to be able to be used by God and reaching all over the world. I want to welcome everybody coming into my home in McKinney, Texas for church. And I want to welcome everybody coming from SoundCloud all over the world coming to listen to me. Welcome. God bless you. Uh, If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our service and where we're going to be and our all that stuff. So we, we I want to first ask the Lord to bless our time and bless the message and bless our ears. So if you join me, please. Lord God Almighty in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for all the many blessings that you give us in our everyday life. Lord, I'm not the only one that has to be thankful for all the things that you do for me. Lord, every true child of yours sees those awesome blessings that you give us, Lord. And we just rejoice and we're thankful, Lord. I was even talking to my wife this morning about the many blessings that we've had and the many times that he's delivered us from, that that you, Lord God, have delivered us out of the hand of the enemy, Lord. And and I just was... I'm so thankful, Lord, for all the many ways that I know that you have taken care of me and my wife and my family over the last years and really since we've been born. And so, Lord, I thank you for this time to get to be able to stand up here, Lord. I thank you for this time to be able to worship you, Lord, and to take communion, Lord, and to and to just show you I love you by my actions, Lord, not just by my words. We ask you to bless this message today. Bless our time together, Lord. Bless this teaching. Help our ears to hear the things that you want us to hear, Lord. And Lord, may we all learn so we can grow and so that we can go and so that we can do all the things that you want us to do and to be the people of your pasture, the people that you want us to be. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you guys want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 15 through 22 in Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to do that after my thoughts from last week's message, the parable of the wedding feast. In my message last week, I covered a lot of things. Actually, it was, it was probably one of my more versatile messages. There were more little details that I pulled out of that message than I probably had any other message that I probably ever taught in over two years that God's had me teaching here at this church. I covered the Jews' rebellion and rejection of God's invitation to the wedding feast, which was also, remember, their rejection of eternal life. You know, the eternal life that God was wanting to give them. I covered the you in the false idea of unconditional election in the acronym TULIP of Calvinism. Remember we talked about how that's not right. You know, God loves everybody. God chooses everybody. The Bible really says, 
not just chooses some. I covered the false doctrine of replacement theology. There's no way that we read in the Bible that God has forsaken the Jews at all when we look to Revelation and we look to the promises to the Jews in the Old Testament. No way. I covered the idea that everyone will go to heaven and see the rewards that God has for those who've accepted his invitation, but unfortunately, the only ones that'll get to stay are those that have accepted that invitation. The other ones will see those awesome things that God has planned for those that love him, and they'll be kicked out, sadly. I also covered the idea that many or all people are being called by God and given an invitation to come to that wedding feast or heaven. But few are chosen not because God only chooses some, because God chooses all, but just like the Jews in our wedding feast, those will be rejected because they reject God. Many are called, but few are chosen because they reject God's wedding invitation, sadly. But there is, believe it or not, one more idea that God showed me while I was preparing this thoughts from last week that Jesus taught on right there, but I didn't see it last week because God didn't show it to me. So, of course, I can't show you or teach you anything unless God teaches me first because I'm just a man. And all revelation comes to me, comes to you by revelation from God, not from me. I'm not the source of revelation. God is. So what is this idea that Jesus taught on in last week's message but that I didn't cover? Maybe you already got it. Maybe God already showed it to you and God just revealed it to me. Well, it was awesome revelation. What is that idea? If you take the whole parable, whether Jew first, then Gentile after, what was God's whole heart about in that parable of the wedding feast? That God desires people to be with him at that feast and, in a sense, in heaven. Again, he chose the Jews first. That was his chosen people. They rejected. doesn't matter. He still wanted them to come to the feast. Remember, the master or the, the, the landlord or the, the, you know, God in the parable sends his servants out to go call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Well, this is a picture of how God longs for people to spend eternity with him. They rejected, so yet what did God do? He didn't just stop and say, oh, well, (laughs) my chosen people chose not to, you know, they rejected me. Oh, well, I guess I'll spend eternity alone with just these few servants. No, he sends the servants out again and says, go call others. Anybody you can go call. Anybody that you see on the meet on the road, call them. Let's go. I want them to be at the feast with me. His heart, I want people to come and spend eternity with me. Wow. There is a huge belief in the Christian world as to why God Almighty created mankind. And sadly, there are many who believe that God only created people solely for His glory. But I look at that, and I look at our sin nature, 
And I think of this. How much real glory can a sinner like me, a wicked, evil sinner like me, bring to a totally holy and righteous God? I say, not much. People that do turn to love God can glorify Him by the way that they live their lives, but we don't do that naturally. That's something that we can only do after God changes us, after we seek Him. So I do believe that people can bring God some glory, and that is one of the reasons we're here, to of course give God glory and to glorify God by the way we live. But that's not the only reason I believe God created mankind. I believe scripturally that God mainly created us for fellowship, for communion, for relationship, now and for eternity. If we look throughout the whole Word of God, God's heart is outreach. God's heart is speak with me. God's heart is I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want to have a fellowship with you. I want to have, you know, look here, the, the marriage the marriage feast of the Lamb. Okay, so God was inviting people to, for Jesus to get married to the Christian church or people in the Christian church. God's heart is to have relationship with people. That's God's main reason to me scripturally, all throughout the Bible, that I see why God created people. You see, everything in all creation belongs to God. Everything. Even your physical body that you're in now. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets in outer space, outer space, your chair that you're sitting on, the floor that you're standing on, the roof that's over your head, everything belongs to God. He is the creator of everything. Everything belongs to Him. But there's one thing that He lacks. Just one thing that God doesn't already own. What is that? God doesn't own a relationship with you because He gave you a free will so that you could either choose to live for yourself and live for this world and the temporary things that are going on in this world right now, or you could choose to put your love towards Him and your devotion towards Him and give Him your heart and give Him your devotion and give Him yourself. He doesn't own that. He chose not to own that. He could have. He could have said, everything's mine. These people that I'm going to make are all my slaves. They have to bow down to me every day and worship me. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. They're mine. But he didn't. He gave us free will so that we could love him if we wanted to, even though his heart is for us to love him. He still left that choice in our hands. Because real relationship and real love is not forced. It has to be a natural thing. If you're with your wife or your husband, you love them most likely not because you were forced with a shotgun to the wedding altar, but that you fell in love with them because of the type of person that they were. And that's what God doesn't own in all of creation, is your heart. So, Big idea from last week and to start our new message with and our new week off this week for us personally. How do we apply this? Remember this week as you go forth. 
completely and utterly trust in God Almighty and in Jesus Christ with everything and every detail and everything in your life. Because relationship doesn't work without trust. Know that He's always there for you and rest in that. Have peace in that. And this week going forward, spend some more time with God in prayer. Spend some more time in His Word. Spend some more time talking to Him if you're a Christian. Spend some more time, you know, getting to know who He is. Shut off that TV a little bit more. Close that book or whatever you're doing that's, you know, not having to do with fellowshipping with God. And spend some more time with Him because, to me, this is the main reason why I see biblically that you were created. To have fellowship and communion and relationship with God. He wants it with you now while you live on this earth now. And He wants it with you for forever too. We'll have a relationship with God as we walk forth in eternity with Him forever as well too. So, focus on that this week because know that's what one of the things that God really wants from you. Praise God. Alright, well let's move forward to this week's message. The title of this week's message is... Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. So if you guys want to follow along with me and read, or just read along with me, that's fine, whatever, or listen along, I'm going to read it, and then I'll start to teach it. 22, 15 through 22, the Bible declares. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him, that would be Jesus, their disciples. This would be now the Pharisees' disciples that they send to him. With the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Ouch. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render, or you could say give. Give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Wow. So, in case you missed it first off there, Jesus is finished with his reply to the religious leaders for their scornful question to him about, you know, where do you get the authority? Where's your authority from that you do the things that you do? And remember, he asked them a question in return. Yes, I'll answer you if you could tell me where John's, John the Baptist's baptism was from. And, and so they gave him a scornful question, and then they answered him scornfully with, well, we, you know, word that we don't know. Well, they were lying. But nevertheless, they were scornful toward him, and he scorned them back with several parables, remember? But here he's done speaking to them. Where do you see that? We see right off verse 15. Then the Pharisees went. 
he was done talking. Jesus had finally finished his response to them for their scornfulness. So he's done with the parables to them. In the parables, he gave them a lot to think about, remember. He gave them three picturesque stories or parables, because that's what a parable is, a picturesque story. It's a, it's a story in a picture form that helps you visualize what you know the person's trying to say. So he gave them three picturesque stories or parables to help them see how they were acting towards God and him. Plus, he gave them picturesque excuse me, stories of consequences, of the consequences they had faced and that they would face because of how they had treated God in the past and what they were going to do to Christ in the future. And the words he used against them, remember, they were pretty harsh in my book. Jesus didn't go easy on them. He laid down the proverbial law. He said, this is what you've done. This is how you've been acting. And so because of your actions, this is what you're going to have to suffer. Very plain. He did it in three different parables, so there could be no mistake. They knew exactly what he was talking to them about because they answered him back. They realized there in, in our last two parables ago, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, they knew he was speaking about them. So his words were very, uh, very forthright very powerful towards them. He, he rebuked them much for the way that they were. Yet, with all the harsh words that Christ had just given them in these picturesque stories called parables, how did they respond to him? Look at what they did in verse 15 here. And the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him and his talk. Yet all the things that he just told them, all the, the, the you know, this is what's going to happen to you, this is what you've done, they don't repent, and yet they go away and they send their disciples to Jesus to attack him yet again. They could have repented at the teaching of Jesus. They could have realized that they were wrong, which they knew that he was teaching that parable against them. They could have humbled themselves. They could have repented and they could have turned to him, but yet they chose instead to harden their hearts. Now, if you remember, this is the second time now that they have successively chosen not to repent at Jesus' rebukes and warnings in these last three parables. Remember, the first one was in Matthew 25, 45-46, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So they had once before decided and made a decision. They realized he was talking about them. They said, no, and they hardened their hearts and they, they wanted to attack him, but yet because of the people, they couldn't. So here now, the second time, they refuse to repent and come to him. And instead, they harden their hearts against him and send their, fairs, send their disciples to him to attack him. Well, you know, the same thing goes for us today. We can't just, like I've said this in the past, I'm big on it now, we can't just look at the scriptures and think, wow, those are just for those people. We can't do that. We have to look at us today. The same goes for us today. When God rebukes us for something that we're doing wrong, there's two ways we can always go. Just like when a parent punishes their child. There's two ways that that child can go. 
he can either repent and, and, you know, turn to mom and dad and say, dad, mom, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm trying not to do that anymore. You know, and I won't do that anymore. You know, please forgive me. And, or they can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. And then just keep go doing it. And then just keep getting in trouble. Well here, you know, we see them and there's two ways for us today. When God rebukes us for something we're doing wrong, we can either harden our hearts toward him and say, oh, well, whatever. Or we can repent. It's always a shame when people don't repent when God rebukes them. You see, if we come to God in repentance, we come in humility and apologetically. We come softly to God, realizing we're wrong, you know. Gosh, Lord, I, I blew it in this thing I did. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, Lord. And you know what? Help me to remind me not to do that anymore. But when we harden our hearts, we push him away and really we run from God's love. We run away from God. Which is why, this is why, if you wonder why repentance is so big taught in the Bible, it's taught all throughout the whole Bible. Old Testament and New. Jesus spoke about it. The disciples spoke about it. God spoke about it in the Old Testament. In fact, there's no repentance without, or there's no salvation without repentance, the Bible says. Which is why God is big on repentance. He wants people to humble themselves, realize that they're wrong, he's right, and turn to him. That's why he told, that's why he said through Peter, for God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but it is long-suffering toward us, willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. The opposite of perishing is coming to repentance. Realizing I'm wrong, humbling myself, turning to God, and, you know, asking for forgiveness and, you know, moving forward with Him. Instead of, oh, I can't hate when I'm, when I'm corrected. Because that's the alternative. When we harden our hearts, we run from Him, we harden ourselves off, and we just refuse to accept the chastening. We refuse to accept the discipline that He's given us. So, here, back to our scriptures, not us anymore, how does the Bible say that they come to attack him? Look at verse 16 again. They, which would be the Pharisees now, sent to him, Jesus, their disciples, with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we, knew, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. They send their disciples, these wicked and evil, unrepentant guys, send their disciples to Jesus, along with these Herodians, to attack him with this question concerning taxes. Now, excuse me, they didn't ask the question yet. They send the disciples with the Herodians to him, and they they start to flatter him. Did you notice? Oh, teacher, we know you come from God. And they start telling them all these nice things. And some are actually true. Because God does regard man. God doesn't honor man. Because man is supposed to honor God. But God does love man. And God does have a regard for or a care for man. So some of the things they actually say are true. But in a man, from a man's perspective to another man, they really thought, I'm going to build him up here. I'm going to flatter him. Man, you're the best. Oh, you come from God. We know you teach the way of truth. But now, God had already written his word 
Proverbs 29.5, thousands of years before this, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So, so I believe here, even though they came to flatter, Jesus already knew way ahead of time, once he first started hearing them, that they're not here really to build me up. I mean, Jesus was not an idiot, right? We're not idiots. And when we read this, we know that, number one, we know this thing's starting off. The Pharisees did not honor God. The Pharisees did not give any respect to Christ. So now all of a sudden they just flip and change with no outward sign of repentance. And they just send their disciples to go, Oh, Jesus, you men come from God. And they just start giving them all this praise. I mean, again, Jesus wasn't an idiot and neither are we. It's very easy to see here that they weren't there telling the truth. They were lying. They were there just to flatter him because they were up to something. They had something bigger in mind. Solomon, or the one that wrote Proverbs 29, also said a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. When you're building somebody up that much like that, you're, you're, you're really wanting him to walk into a trap so that you can ensnare him and then make him fall for some reason. And I mean, oh, well, why won't people want to do that to somebody? But this is just the way the wicked heart of man acts, I guess. So what were they up to? Why did they come to flatter Jesus like this? Let's break down exactly what they do and say here and see what they're up to. Let's look at each one of these things that they say here in verse 17. Well, first, verse 16, what did they do? The Pharisees, first of all, send their disciples. Now, what? why? Why did the Pharisees not go to Jesus? Now, I mean, to me, that's pretty cowardly. They do a cowardly thing first off. They send their disciples. They had tried many times to ensnare Jesus, many times to attack him, many times to speak against him, and yet without avail. It availed nothing. They, they weren't able to do it. Now they maybe figured, well, maybe we'll send our disciples. Like Jesus was an idiot, like he wouldn't have known the people that followed the Pharisees. He obviously knew that these people were, you know, from the people that hated him. But to me, I, I see this as cowardly. Don't send your understudy to do a job that you couldn't do. But now, not only did they act cowardly sending their disciples, but they also, they also send these other people along. We introduce a new, a new type of person to our scripture here called the Herodians. Who were they? Does the name sound familiar? Does the name sound familiar? Herodians? Herod is the first part of that word, Herodian. A Herodian, these, this people group, they weren't a religious sect, but as the name implies, a court or political party supporters of the dynasty of Herod. So these Herodians were people that actually supported Herod. So now, why were these cowardly Pharisees send their disciples along with these Herodians, which were political party supporters for Herod, to send to Jesus to flatter him with their words. Look at the question that they ask him in verse 17. They ask him, altogether they say, Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They ask him a question. They ask him a question about paying taxes. 
Now, why in the world would a religious sect of the Pharisees, along with some Herodians, some supporters of Herod, come to Jesus, who was a spiritual leader of Israel? You could say Jesus was a religious or spiritual leader of the Jews. He wasn't in government. He wasn't striving to take Caesar's or Herod's place. He was just a spiritual leader of man, trying to lead man to God. Why would we want to go to a spiritual leader and ask a spiritual leader a political, maybe, maybe you'd call it a political, maybe it would just be a tax question. Why would you send these guys to ask a spiritual leader about a tax question or a political question? Why would they do that? Let's see why. Jesus tells us, verse 18, he says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? So this was a test question. They came to test him. Jesus knew it. They obviously had that intent in their heart. Jesus being God knows the intent of their heart. Why would, how would this tax question test Jesus? Test him in which way? See, they wanted to trap him. They wanted to trap him in his answer. Herodians would have been the political party that supported Herod, and they were the religious leaders of the people in, as the mass. So you have one side representing government, and one side representing spiritual, or supposed to be God. And they come and ask Jesus kind of a trick question. Well, hey, Jesus, we know that you know, you're all this. We know that you're a, a leader, come from God, and a teacher, and all this stuff. So, you know, what about Herod? You see, this is a trick question, but why? If Jesus would have said no, the Herodians, which were for Herod, for the government, for Caesar, would have arrested him and put him to death because he would have been acting in sedition or a revolt or an incitement to revolt against established authority, usually in the form of treason or defamation against government, which was Rome. Okay? If Jesus, being a Jew, would have said no, don't pay Caesar those taxes because you know what? We don't even like that Rome is over us right now. Then Rome would have seen that as an attack. Jesus had hundreds and thousands of followers. If he would have said, no, don't pay taxes, he would have been like on a charge to revolt against Caesar. They would have had their opportunity to take him arrest him, and those caught for sedition, put to death. They would have been able to get rid of their problem. Get rid of this guy that was taking all their people away from them. That if he would have said no, if he would have said yes, well, Pharisees would have had screamed bloody murder against him and thrown and, and tried to throw the people into an uproar because he would have been acting as a supporter of Rome and Caesar. You see, Jews, as I just said, hated the Roman government being over them. They hated it. They couldn't wait to be free. In fact, that's uh, many people were looking for the Messiah to come, even Jesus' time before and after, because they were looking for the Messiah to set them free from the Roman government. They hated being under Roman, under Roman care. Rome, you know, gave them stipulations and, you know, so on and so forth. They weren't just free to be the people 
of, you know, the land as they were for a long time. So the people, or the Pharisees were trying to get the people to turn away from Jesus. If the people would have heard Jesus say, yes, give to Caesar the taxes, the Pharisees would have gone to the people, look, he's supporting Rome. The people hated Rome. They were wanting the people to turn against Jesus. And therefore, what did they already want to do? They already had wanted to lay their hands on him back in Matthew chapter 21, 45 and 46. So they wanted the people to turn against him so that they could lay their hands on him, take him then, and put him to death. They would have had a reason. They probably, in fact, would have stoned him right on the spot. They got people. There was a time in the book of Acts where Paul was caught there and and all the people started to go into an uproar because of something. And people, they get into this mob mentality. They hear something they don't like and all of a sudden they're just screaming bloody murder and they come if there's masses of people. And Jesus easily could have been stoned to death or trampled to death just by his simple answer of, yes, I think it's right to pay Caesar the taxes that he's due. But, so they think that they've got Jesus in a pretty compromising position. They think that they have Jesus between a rock and a hard space here. But do they? Do they have Jesus caught? Do they have him stuck? This was a difficult question. We may look at it from our perspective today and say, oh, we look at his answer now because, of course, we have that from the past. But if you think about how Jesus was in that time right there, he knew that this was his life that was on the line with the answer to this question. You know, a question is just a question, but it's what's behind the question. If the question that you're going to answer costs you, would cost, could cost you a lot, the pressure's on. So yes, Jesus answers this question we're going to see here in just a moment easily, but yet this is a difficult question for him. When he, was faced, when he was faced with it. But did they really have him stuck? Did Jesus get flattered? Did Jesus get upset? That, oh my gosh, how do I answer? I just don't know what to say. Look at verses 19 through 21 and let's see how Jesus answers. He says to them, of course, you know, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this on it? And they said to him, well, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, give or render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Did they have him stuck? Did they have him trapped? Absolutely not. He was God in the flesh, as we know. He trapped them with their trapping question. He caught them as they thought that they caught him, he caught them. He appeased both sides. Hey, I'm not against Rome, and I'm not against God. Hey, God wants you to be a good steward of this world and to be responsible with your government, with your people, but God also wants you to make sure that you're giving properly toward him as well too. So Jesus takes their really difficult question And he flips it on them and turns it against them and says, you know what, you're right. But you know, both deserve their due. So I'm not for, I'm for everything. I'm for being responsible. I'm for being a good citizen. I'm for being a good, you know, tax-paying 
religious, godly man. And what could they do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But you know, sadly, even though Jesus did many amazing miracles, signs and wonders among them, and we know he did, hundreds, thousands of signs and wonders and miracles in in three years. The Bible says in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, that Jesus did more things than ever would be recorded. And, And even all the books in all the world wouldn't be enough to contain all the things that Jesus did. So he was constantly doing signs and wonders and miracles. So sadly, even though he did all these things, sadly, even though he taught them with his ancient eternal wisdom, being God, the creator of the universe in the flesh, Sadly, even though he transcended space and time by passing through crowds and prophesying of the future, and sadly, even though he defied physics by raising people from the dead and raising himself from the dead, these guys here, as well as a majority of the Jewish people at that time then, completely and totally underestimated his real power, might, Intelligence, wisdom, knowledge, and greatness. Nobody that lived with Jesus, and I'll even include us in this picture today, we don't really fully comprehend in this physical mind that we have the greatness and power and glory of both Christ and God. We just don't. We see all these amazing things around us. And I just don't think we can comprehend with our physical mind the greatness, power, authority, wisdom, knowledge, and and might of God. These people didn't see it in Christ then, and we still don't even see it nowadays. And that's really sad because Jesus showed us, and God's showing us all His greatness even throughout all His creation now. And yet we just can't see it. But we can, though, glorify him because he does reveal a little bit to us, enough to where we can have faith. But these people then, they attacked him. Even though they saw the amazing things that he did, they still attacked him. Here, they bring him a very difficult question, one that could cost him his very life. Here he answers their difficult man-thought-up question like a tenured math professor of 30 years would answer the question of what is 2 plus 2? Jesus answered it without even batting an eye. You hypocrites. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. (laughs) How do they respond to his heavenly, godly, perfect answer? Look at verse 22. When they had heard these words, they marveled and they left him and they went their way. First, how'd they respond? They marveled. They were at, they were in wonder. I could imagine them standing there and they thought that they've got this intention. If you've ever, and I think about this now, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll sit here in the house, I'll be doing something and I'll have this thing in the back of my mind that I'm really wanting to do. You know, it'd be like maybe get some ice cream with my son or go for a ride with my dad or, or I, something exciting, something fun. And I'll be doing what I'm doing. And I can imagine them. They, they were so excited. They thought, we got him. 
We got him. We're going to get him. We're going to get him. They were so excited about doing this. They were like, yeah, how's he going to answer that? Do it, sucker, do it. Then when he answers them, they were ready with his answer. They were expecting him to fail. And they were standing there and they were expecting him to fail. And yet he answered them. And I could have seen it now. Their mouths were probably hanging open going, what? 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 What did he just say? Did he? Oh, my goodness gracious. Second, notice here they leave. They were speechless. They couldn't say a word. They couldn't answer him one word. He had stumped them. They were ready to yell sedition or support of Rome. Kill him, everybody. He's got... And yet, they were left speechless and in wonder. Which, reali- which means that, you have to know this, they knew they were wrong. They knew they couldn't get him. They knew... Th- we don't got nothing else. What else? This guy, this guy, this guy is, is, is wow. Speechless. They had him speechless. Or J- Jesus had him speechless. And they left. They just walked away. They realized that they were wrong and he was right. And yet, instead of repenting, we see this picture again. Instead of repenting and turning to him, they walked away. Remember, Jesus had just gone through this with the religious leaders. And they were so wrong, and they realized they were so wrong, they couldn't even go to him anymore here. Now they were such wusses, they were such cowards, they realized they couldn't even, that he was right and they were wrong. They, they stopped trying themselves. So they cowardly sent their, sent their disciples. But instead of repenting, instead of turning to him, they lashed out and they attacked him. Wow! <laughs> Remember at the beginning of my sermon, I said to the Pharisees that after Jesus gave those parables against them, they could have repented but chose to harden their hearts against him. Instead, here the disciples of the Pharisees do the same thing. What? A shame. These guys heard Christ's divine answer. Answered him as easy as two plus two to their almost perfect trapping question. And yet they still refused to repent and turn to him. I, they hadn't read yet because Paul hadn't wrote it yet, but I'm sure this is one of the reasons why Paul, hearing about these accounts and things, and you know, I'm sure that's why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1, he says that the wisdom of God is the foolishness, or the foolishness of God is the wisdom of men. So God's foolishness, not that God's foolish at all, is the wisdom of men. So that goes to show you how smart that we are compared to God. That's amazing. And what was the end result of their hardening their hearts toward Jesus Christ? They leave in amazement. They leave in wonder. And what did they really do? Just like I said in the beginning of the sermon, they ran away from Him. They ran away from His love. 
You know, Jesus said here in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 22, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In the context of paying taxes. And we know that biblically, we're going to look at it in a little bit, we know that, of course, God wants us to be lawful, abiding, you know, citizens, so on and so forth. And that was in the tax aspect of it. But if you take what he says and and apply what he says here, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and you apply it to our lives, both spiritually and physically, what he says is very powerful and really biblical. These guys didn't repent, refused to repent, turned against him still, and continued to harden their hearts and walk away. But outside of the context of being asked to taxes, I want to take, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and apply them to our lives today and the lives that we live today. So what, God, what does God want us to give to our governing authority or you could say to our Caesar? Well, God is holy, loves righteousness because he is 110% righteous. He's not even unholy, not even 100%. He's he's godly 110%, righteous totally. So, of course, we know, as I just mentioned, God wants us to give to Caesar or our government what's due to them. What does this look like for us today? This is hard for a lot of Christians. This is difficult for people when we talk about this, but this is godly, it's truth. God wants mankind or people to be law-abiding good citizens. And of course, a morally upright person in society, paying our taxes and living by the laws of the land. This is what God desires for us, you know, in the physical. As far as, you know, give to God what is God's and to Caesar's to Caesar's. God desires us to be lights in this world, of course. And how do we be lights if we're skipping out on our taxes or if we're not paying our bills or, you know, if we're being immoral or if we're, you know, if we're, if we're breaking all kinds of laws and things like that. So, of course, God desires us to obey the laws of the land. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, 1 and 2. He says, let every soul, and that covers pretty much everybody, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that are exist are appointed by God. So we all, Paul just said, everybody alive should be respectful of the authority that's above us. President Barack Obama, our state legislators, our congressmen, so on and so forth, the laws of the land, we should be respectful of these things. Verse 2, therefore, he says, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. So in the physical, God even tells us if we resist these laws of the land, we're going to bring judgment upon ourselves. So God wants us to give to Caesar what Caesar's, or give to our government or our governing authorities what we're supposed to give them. Just as Jesus said to the disciples of the Pharisees, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So now the second part remains, though. We know what God wants us to be like for our society, for our government, and so on and so forth. But what do we have 
that God wants. Jesus said, give to God the things that are God, the things that belong to God, and give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What do we have that God wants? Well, it's very interesting because I did not plan this. But God actually caused the beginning of my sermon to roll all the way through to the end. This happens once in a while where I find, but I don't promise you I don't plan this. What do we have that God wants? I talked about it earlier in my thoughts from last week. Do you remember? He wants our devotion. He wants our love. He wants to have an intimate relationship with people. He loves everyone, but doesn't want us to doesn't want to force us to love him back. He wants our love and he wants our natural love. These are the things that we can give to God. God desires to fellowship with us and for us to make him the Lord or master of our lives. That means we turn to him. We surrender to him our ways. We surrender to Him our hearts. We decide to stop living for ourselves, come into a relationship with God the same way a man would come into the relationship of a woman or a woman would come into the relationship of a man. She no longer lives for just herself. She lives now for her spouse. Or vice versa, the man would start living for not for only for himself, but also for his wife. This is what God wants from us. This is what God desires from people. Again, this is the only thing we can give God. He has everything else. He owns the plants in your yard. He owns the sun, the moon, the stars. The Bible says he has a cattle on a thousand hills. God is not short financially. He's not broke His money's not fake like ours here in America. His money's real. God has everything. We can't give him anything that he doesn't already have. If we give him our money, he already had our money. If we give him, he already has. We can't, oh, I'm going to give my team. Oh, he already has that. Because you can't take it with you when you die. It all stays here and eventually it'll all be destroyed. Every atom in all creation belongs to God. The only thing that we can give God that he doesn't already have is ourselves. Is a surrendered relationship unto him. So today, if you're not giving to God the things that are his, would you start? Would you begin today to give to God the things that he wants you to give to him? Will you turn to Him now and surrender to Him, giving Him your life, starting a relationship with Him, turning to Him with all your heart, asking Him for help, asking Him for forgiveness, turning to Him right now and saying, God, I need you. Would you please, I want to be in a relationship with you. And start an intimate, personal relationship with Him right now. Because that's the only thing that you can give him that he doesn't already have. So, I started with it in the beginning and I'm ending with it at the end. Give to God what God wants from you. And give to Caesar 
what is due to Caesar. But don't give all yourself to this world. This world's passing away. And so are we. We could die tomorrow. Wherever you sow is where you will reap. If you sow your time into the things of this world, you'll reap the things of this world. If you sow your time and you sow a relationship with God and you seek a relationship with God and you sow into God and the things of God, that's where you'll reap for all eternity too. Because one day you'll go to be with Him. And just like I talked on last week, everybody will see the kingdom of heaven. Everybody will see the things of God. But not everybody will stay. God's inviting you to the wedding feast again today, right now. And He says, come, start a relationship with me. Will you? Please begin now. He loves you so much. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you so much for this word today. Thank you so much for your words and your word, the Holy Bible. Thank you so much, dear God, for your character. Lord, we see your amazing character of love shine through in every single line of Scripture in all the Bible. At least I do, Lord. And especially through Christ. God, your love is amazing. And we, with our sinfulness and our evil, Lord, we don't even deserve to be loved. Lord, we're like the... We deserve to just be thrown away, all of us. Because none of us is righteous. We hardly can't even do right. We're wicked and we're evil and we're sinners. And yet, Lord, you paid the highest price you could for us. You paid the highest price you could. There's no higher price that you could have given for us than what you did already. And so, Lord, now it's our turn. Our turn is to respond. Our turn is to see what you did for us and turn to you because of what you've done for us. So, Lord, I pray those that are listening, Lord, everywhere, all over the world, wherever they are, if they aren't in a relationship with you, seeking you, trusting in you, fellowshipping with you, reading your word, loving you with all their hearts, Lord, I pray that they would start to do that now. I pray they'd stop fooling around. Lord, we only get so much time in this life. And your desire, we saw it in the parable of the wedding feast, is to spend eternity with people. And I pray, dear God, that they would hear your cry out to them again today. And I pray that they would turn to you and not waste another minute doing the things of this world and not focusing on you and not regarding you and not giving you any other time in their lives. Lord, I pray these things and I ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our Low House Church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015, and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions, or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love Him back by the way you live your life. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.